0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Problematic Women, a podcast and Facebook live show that showcases strong conservative women, current events, and the hypocrisy of the feminist left. My name is Kelsey Harkness and I'm a senior news producer with The Daily Signal.
1: I'm Jenny Malcivano, a contributor to The Daily Signal. We're going to kick off this show with Trump administration officials, mostly women, still being targeted and harassed. There's a whole list. It's, it's truly incredible in a terrible way. I'm sure a lot of you saw last weekend, uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters was calling for Trump administration officials to be harassed in their private lives, in public spaces. Nancy Pelosi got mad, Kelsey, but ultimately blamed the situation on Donald Trump. We had Kirsten Nielsen being harassed last week, which we talked about in depth. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, as most of you know, was kicked out of the Red Hen restaurant, but now she actually has Secret Service protection. I'm pretty sure she's the first White House press secretary to have Secret Service protection. Karen Pence was bullied online and harassed. Just awful, awful comments. Elaine Chao, the wife of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, was also cornered and targeted, although she fought back, and we're going to tackle that later on in the show. And Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi, really some awful stuff, was going to see a documentary on Mr. Rogers. How (laughs) ironic. With her boyfriend, luckily some state troopers were with them, she was cornered, she was spit on, she was yelled at. Here is her talking about this on Fox & Friends this week.
2: Because I was talking normally to them, they didn't know what to do, so then three huge guys came up and started probably an inch from my face, screaming at me, every word in the book, cursing as loud as they could. Uh, so then a trooper, my trooper came up and my boyfriend and I got our tickets. We're headed in and then they ran in and circled me where I could not get into the theater. They stopped me. Um, so he came up then and stopped them. So then we went in the theater, thought it was diffused. We're up getting popcorn at the concession stand and they came up again, just every curse word in the book. And they said to him, Hey, blue eyes, come on. Aren't you going to protect her? Using a lot of... You know, a lot Mm -hmm. of other words too. Mm -hmm. aren't you going to protect her? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And they're this far from my face. One spit on my head. Now, I can't say that was intentional because he was yelling so loud. I don't know Mm -hmm. if it was just him spewing out of his mouth.
1: Some horrifying things, Kelsey, and it seems to be escalating um, as time goes on. What do you think?
0: The list you just read is incredible. It started with just uh, one administration official being targeted, and now it's spread to a regular thing where every day on Twitter we're seeing a different official targeted, and many of them women, which is very ironic because this they're being targeted by the same party that claims to champion women. So I think there's a lot of hypocrisy there. I think there's also some interesting liberal logic happening when you think about the fact that Sarah Huckabee Sanders now needs Secret Service protection, this costs taxpayer money. How do liberals think that these things are paid for? So if they're unhappy with these administration officials, they're actually just basically writing them bigger checks because now these administration officials need this type of protection. And that comes out of taxpayer Dollars. It does. That's a really great point,
1: Kelsey. Glad that you brought that up.
0: Yeah. And then another thing I wanted to talk about in regards to the targeting: uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, kicked out of a restaurant, which is really, you know, I think signals a scary time for America, where you can't even eat in peace. Um, but I thought I thought it was important to differentiate what happened to Sarah Huckabee Sanders versus what's happening with someone like Jack Phillips, owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop, who declined to make a uh, cake for a same-sex wedding based on his religious beliefs. Uh, Robert P. George, a professor from Princeton University, I thought explained it well in two tweets. So here's what he said. If you want to apologize even roughly, uh, or if you want to analyze even roughly the Red hen to uh, masterpiece cake shop, Sarah Sanders had has to ask Reg- Red Hen to create custom food items for a celebration, perhaps at her church, of the zero tolerance policy. And the Red Hen has to be willing to serve her on its premises. so, sell- her off-the-shelf food items that she can use at any event she likes and provide custom-designed food for her birthday parties, holiday celebrations, and any other events that redhead own Red Hens owners don't object to on moral grounds. So what he's saying is the big difference between these two situations. In the case of Jack Phillips, he's objecting to a certain event, to what he believes is um, the celebration of a certain religious event versus Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, wasn't able to get served at all at the Red Hen.
1: Scary times.
0: All right. Well, that's not the end of all this uh, crazy harassment and targeting of uh, of public officials. Interestingly enough, Jenny, Democrat leaders such as Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer actually distanced themselves from the comments that really initiated from Congresswoman Maxine Waters. Um, But guess who didn't distance themselves from the comments? Guess who actually embraced Maxine Waters calls to personally harass Trump administration officials or anyone for that matter who you disagree with. The Women's March. Mm. (laughs) So this caught my attention on Twitter. Um, While a lot of the Democratic Party was distancing themselves, the Women's March came out and tweeted, at Rep Maxine Waters, you have a whole movement behind you. Women have your back and women don't back down. So, I think this is another interesting case that shows the true colors of the Women's March organization. There were so many women who supported the Women's March, went out, wore their pink you-know-what hats, and... I just, I've had this hunch all along that they don't actually know what they're marching for. They don't actually know, they're not following what this organization is actually supporting and actually calling on. And in this case, they're calling on the, they're calling for the targeted harassment of Trump administration officials, many of them women. So it's obviously hypocritical. um, And I, you know, I, I really hope that Women who have supported the Women's March in the past maybe question this, maybe put some pressure on them to not encourage the targeted harassment of uh, people who you disagree with. Um, But it seems like the leaders of the Women's March, Linda Sarsour and, and Mallory Thomas, are not planning on backing down. And while I'm on the topic of these two... I just want to mention a little side note that over the weekend, um, they also uh, came out with some very anti-Semitic statements and said that Israel doesn't really have the right to exist. So here's what Tamika Mallory, one of the co-founders of the Women's March, said um, about the founding of Israel as a nation. These comments were published on forward.com. When you go into someone's home And you need a place to stay. You ask, can I come into your home and can I stay here and can we peacefully coexist? You don't walk into someone else's home needing a place. It's clearly you needed a place to go. Cool, we get that. I hear that. But you don't show up to somebody's home needing a place to stay and decide that you're going to throw them out and hurt the people who are on that land. And to kill, steal, and do whatever it is you're going to do to take that land. That to me is unfair. It's a human rights crime. (laughs) So she called the founding of Israel, a human rights crime. And her comments were only to be outdone
1: by her partner in crime, Linda Sarsour. I'm an organizer and activist. I engage in civil disobedience like 20 times a year. In fact, um, the Women's March and our partners are organizing the largest women's civil disobedience this Thursday about ending family separation and ending family detention. And Dr. Martin Luther King warned us about people like Chuck Schumer. He said it's not the it wasn't the Ku Klux Klan and the white citizen counselors who are the obstacles towards justice. It was the people calling for, quote, civility and people that were telling us when to protest at what time and how to protest. And I need to let people know that what when we talk about civility, it is not civil to rip babies from their mothers. It is not civil to break up Muslim families. It is not civil to take away health care from millions of Americans. So you want to talk to me about civility. Let's make sure that we're engaging in justice, ensuring that every American has access to things like health care and housing, that there is no poverty in America and that children are with their mothers. Well, I agree with you. that They don't seem to really know what they're marching for, but it certainly seems to be against Trump and Israel.
0: (laughs) They should just rebrand themselves as the anti-Trump march. And then I think that People, women like you and I would have a lot less beef with them because they would actually be representing what they claim to represent. Instead, they claim to represent women, which I think is really unfair to a lot of us. It is.
1: Completely agree. So celebrities are still virtue signaling. Not a surprise, but a huge group of them went down to visit the border in Texas. Um, What they were doing is they're protesting the child separation. But what I notice is a lot of them, like, Amber Heard and Joshua Jackson, they were holding up signs that had remarks about the Holocaust. And we talked about this last week, that it can be really dangerous to compare everything you don't like to Nazism, to the Holocaust. It's it's a slippery slope. And um, I don't think it's always a great idea to do. Now, on on another note, what celebrities are doing, I'm sure a lot of you remember Melania Trump's infamous, um, I don't really care, do you jacket, which I'll be honest, puzzling why she wore that. But clearly, I mean, I think you would clearly, it was not aimed toward the children. I think it was aimed toward the, the media. That makes the most sense. Um, I don't think it was a great move because look at the hoopla that's any other day. It. She could
0: have worn it and it would have been fine. And exactly. it would have clearly been directed at the media. But wearing that jacket, boarding a plane to mm-hmm. go visit children who have allegedly been separated um, from their parents at the border was maybe. A bad choice.
1: Right. And we can agree on that. So what celebrities are doing is they've come out with shirts that say, yes, lady, we do care. And they're selling them. I saw this on my Instagram. I was just going through my personal feed and saw all of this. Uh, they're charging like a ridiculous amount for them. And it's really taking off. So what I think is interesting is celebrities have been so upset about Melania Trump, about the border. But then yesterday, Justice Kennedy retires, and it has very quickly shifted to the Supreme Court. Our country's going up in flames. Do you think that's surprising?
0: It's not surprising, and I think so many of us are frustrated by their level of outrage that they express on a daily basis. I've noticed in my personal Instagram feed, people who are not even involved in Twitter um, posting screenshots. As comparing what's happening now to the Holocaust and um, screenshotting ACLU press releases about the situation that we're in. And it's really interesting when I see this come from people who professionally are not involved in politics and personally in my social situations have never even initiated a conversation about politics with me. Most people who know me know what I do. No, I'm very passionate about it, and I'm happy to talk about it all day, every day. But because that is what I do professionally, I don't. I usually leave it up to them to raise political conversations um, with me, because you know, once once they, it's like once you pop, you can't stop. Like the Pringles, that's basically me. <laughs> if, if someone starts a political conversation with me, I'm there. Um, but I'm I'm curious why so many people are sort of. Being these Instagram, social media, social justice warriors, why can't they have these conversations face to face with people like us that they might not agree with?
1: I think a lot of it has to do with they don't fully understand the policy. It's, it's very about emotions and feelings, not so much facts and logic. And another thing that I've noticed, especially with celebrities, is they assume this premise that conservatives, that Republicans are okay with children being separated. I mean, it's been made very clear that we're not, they're not. But we recognize that it's going to take not just President Trump signing an executive order, it's going to take Congress acting to permanently fix it, not just selling some t-shirts or texting a number to donate. There's so much more to it instead of just feeling good because you sent a text
0: yeah and i might get in trouble for saying this but it it comes off as very you know pat yourself on the back Mm -hmm. selfish to me um, or self-virtuous to me to basically put something on instagram and say well i contributed i'm standing up for the right thing when really what is that Instagram post doing other than just dividing people? You're not actually facilitating a productive conversation on social media when you post something provocative like that. You should go in person, go to a restaurant, um, go out to eat, go on a walk with a friend who maybe disagrees with you and hear and learn about their perspective. I think this week has just been uh, so demonstrative of How unhealthy of a state we are in society where we're talking at each other, not with each other. Um, And I guess the whole concept of civil society is something that I really care about and it's really my life's work trying to help people understand the other perspective. For those who don't know, a lot of what I do at the Daily Signal beyond this podcast is producing short documentaries where I let people tell their own stories in hopes that at the end of at the end of the day, at the end of watching this video, you might not necessarily agree with them policy wise or politically about what they're saying, but you'll understand where they come from, so that we can have a healthier conversation about it and actually talk with each other with. Some some sense of understanding where that person is coming from instead of just shouting at each other and calling each other Nazis. So to me, this week has been very difficult to watch, and I guess it just makes me feel that the work that myself and my colleagues, uh, including you, are doing at The Daily Signal is needed more now than ever. It is. (laughs) Not to give myself a a pat on the back there. all right well let's move on to another really ridiculous news story that happened this week this one jenny really got me going (laughs) so women's experts ranked the u.s the top in the top 10 most dangerous nations for women to live so this was 548 women's experts around the world um who were polled by the Thomson Reuters Foundation, which is the philanthropic arm of Reuters, which Reuters News news is one of the largest news and information providers in the world. So they're polling over 500 of the world's leading experts on women's issues about where are the most dangerous countries to live if you're a woman. The United States came in spot number 10, Right after Nigeria, where Boko Haram is kidnapping little girls, little schoolgirls, and keeping them captive. The full list goes like this the most dangerous places to live for women India, Afghanistan, Syria, Somalia, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Democratic Republic of Congo, Yemen, Nigeria, and yes, the United States. So I just want to point out a few countries. That were notably missing from Reuters list. South Sudan and Central Africa, where the armed forces there systematically rape women as a weapon of war. Of course, rape happens in the United States, but it's not used as a weapon of war. And I guess that to, to conflate these two terrible acts, um, I think is really irresponsible. North Korea, where tens of thousands of women are trafficked every year and trapped in imprisonment camps. Iran, where women are arrested for simply taking off their hijabs and protesting their oppressive government. China, where millions of baby girls were murdered under the country's one-child policy. And Myanmar, where a genocide is happening under our watch. (sighs) Jenny... I could go on. There's so many, there's so many examples of why the United States is not one of the top 10 most dangerous places to live for women. Uh, But I think this really just goes to show why so many of these quote unquote women's experts can't be trusted. I think it also shows how selfish these, this, this feminist women's um, issue issues lens can be on the world because we think, you know, as Americans, our problems are, are the most important. We need to talk about them. They're way more, they're way more important than the problems happening in the, around the world. That's just not true. So I'm, I'm sure that people listening right now want to hear an explanation for why the United States was included. So here's what the foundation wrote. The United States shot up in the rankings after tying third with Syria, When respondents were asked which was the most dangerous country for women in terms of sexual violence, including rape, sexual harassment, coercion into sex, and the lack of access to justice in rape cases, it was ranked sixth for non-sexual violence. The survey was taken after the Me Too campaign against sexual harassment went viral in October last year as Hollywood movie mogul Harvey Weinstein was accused of sexual misconduct by more than 70 women, some dating back decades. Hundreds of women have since publicly accused powerful men in in business, government, and entertainment of sexual misconduct, and thousands have joined the Me Too social media movement to share stories of sexual harassment or abuse. Jenny, what do you think that... A woman, say, in Congo or the Central African Republic would say in response to the United States being labeled as a more dangerous country to live than somewhere like South Sudan.
1: I think that any of those women would be so grateful to get to live in this country. It truly is. the greatest country in the world, the most powerful country, look at our economic opportunity, opportunity in general, the freedoms we have that we really take for granted. And a lot of your work highlights this. Um, so it's kind of a- appalling to look at this because women in this country have more opportunity than most of the other countries on this list combined. I mean, That's women in true. Saudi Arabia that just started really being able to drive. Yep. And it's like this gets just minimized and overlooked And I saw on Twitter you really hashed this out, and I saw our experts at Heritage also contributed to that um, Twitter discussion you were having. I mean, the fact that North Korea is not on this list, there's there's a genocide going on. I could barely I've, I've seen all this before, and just hearing you say it out loud again, it's unbelievable. The United States
0: is so great to live that we have a massive border crisis that no one can figure out how to solve. We have more refugees wanting to come into the country than we can handle. I mean, I I find this incredibly ignorant, incredibly insulting to women who are facing violence in their countries. And I think it really... uh, I think it really reflects the state of feminism today, um, which, once again, I view as very selfish. Yes, we have a lot of problems here in the United States, and I don't want to downplay the importance of Me Too. I am very grateful we're having this com- this much-needed conversation, but that doesn't mean that our problems are worse than um, problems that women face worldwide, um, which I view as human rights abuses— we here in the United States have our human rights. We have a legal system where that we can use to defend our human rights. We have equality b- before the law. Women in so many of these other countries that were not included still lack the most basic human rights. And insinuating that the United States, that our problems are worse than theirs, is ignorant and insulting. And Kelsey had a <laughs> great
1: piece in the Daily Signal on this. So you should all check out. All right, when we come back, we'll move to our next segment called This is What Feminism Looks Like.
0: If you like this podcast, consider subscribing to the Daily Signal podcast. This podcast gives you a daily rundown of the day's leading headlines, provides commentary on what's important, and often invites Daily Signal news reporters or Heritage Foundation scholars to comment on the policy debates playing out in America today. Search for it on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts by typing in The Daily Signal Podcast.
1: And we're back with This Is What Feminism Looks Like, a segment where we hold up positive examples of feminism today. Now, we briefly mentioned this in our introduction, but Elaine Chao, she's the Secretary of Transportation. She also worked under the Bush 43 administration, and she's the wife of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. They were confronted after an event, after hours, by an angry group of protesters who were harassing them. And Elaine Chow really confronted them. In fact, her own security was trying to be a barrier in between Elaine Chow and these protesters. They were playing the sounds of children crying. They were yelling at her husband. And she, to her credit, was saying, leave him alone. Like, this is a very complicated issue and whatnot. It It was very interesting. Listen to this clip.
0: You know what I wonder, Ginny? Where are these protesters when liberal activists and democratic politicians are we're trying to shut down Bethany Christian Services, an agency that facilitates adoption and foster care for children.
1: It's a great question. <laughs> I, they weren't around. I mean, we see this all the time. They like to see Republicans as the enemy, Trump as the enemy. And this, this feeds right into it. Now, protesting in assembly is great. They're protected as Americans. We're allowed to do that. We're a democracy. But I think, Kelsey, that there's a very clear line. And when you start to cross it and when you have the kind of inflammatory rhetoric that people like Maxine Waters are spewing, it can get dangerous. We've already seen it get dangerous last June when Steve Scalise and other congressmen were shot on a baseball field by a miracle. No one was killed. So it very quickly can become dangerous if people who maybe aren't stable feel like they need to do something. Um, So cornering these people like this after hours after a private (laughs) event is crossing a line.
0: Yeah, but I think that so many of us have never loved Elaine Chao more. Absolutely. Uh, seeing someone, a woman no less, stand up for not only herself but her husband was the definition of feminism. Uh she stuck it to them. And you could see you could see the passion and anger in her eyes and I think it's a tough question how How do you respond uh, to these types of protesters? We saw uh, DHS Secretary Christian Nielsen didn't say a thing, just walked out of the restaurant, um, you know, pretty much not by choice uh, because they would not stop harassing her. Elaine Chao stood up for herself. I'm not sure what the best approach is, but I felt empowered just from watching this. And she's an immigrant herself. She is. Good point. All right. When we come back, we will crown our problematic woman of the week. And we're back with Problematic Women. It is time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. So this week, the honor goes to Laura Ingalls Wilder, author of The Little House on the Prairie books, who was deplatformed by the Association for Library Service to Children for being Racist. Joining us to talk about this is our managing editor for the Daily Signal, Kate Tranko, who wrote a piece on this over at USA Today. Kate, why is Laura so problematic? And is it problematic that she's problematic? Yes. (laughs) So uh, I am a longtime fan of
3: Laura Ingalls Wilder, read um, the Nine Little House books, you know, probably a trillion times (laughs) in my childhood. And yeah, so when she was, uh, when this award was no longer named after her because they were concerned about anti-native and anti-black sentiments in her work, that's what they said in February when they were considering this, I was like, huh, do I not remember these books correctly? And so I had the fun of getting to reread parts of The Little House on the Prairie books. That's awesome. It it was great. (laughs) It was my best life. I highly recommend it. um simpler time without the internet or snapchat um but anyway yes there are some problematic elements you know laura ingalls wilder wrote these books in the 1930s before the civil rights era Um, and she also wrote them in the context of you have to remember and i am not an expert on um, american native american relationships and who was right in all these instances But at the time, settlers like her family sometimes were subject to violence by Native Americans. That was a real part of life for people out on the frontier. Um, Obviously, Native Americans have their own perspective on violence, but I think that's very crucial context. All this being said, I think that what this shows is this Library Association is not good at reading. (laughs) If you actually dive into the books, there is a character who says something along the lines of, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. And immediately after that, Laura's father, who is seen as a great character in the books, makes a comment along the lines of, well, maybe if the Indians, the Native Americans, weren't forced to move west all the time, they would be a bit more peaceable. He's pointing out that perspective right away. Another line that got a lot of controversy was uh, Wilder wrote, there were no people there. There were only Indians describing the prairie. That's a line she wrote, uh, I believe the book was published in 1935. In 1952, a concerned parent wrote into Wilder's editor and said, hey, aren't Indians people, essentially? The editor forwarded on to Wilder, who wrote back and said, let's, you know, she agreed to change the line to there were no settlers there. And she said that was a stupid blunder. Hmm. Of course, Indians are people. I'm paraphrasing, but it was very close to that. So, she was not some racist woman. And uh, lastly, I would just say, I think the real thing that's going on here is the Little House books. Um, they they prize virtues that the left hates. <laughs> they encourage hard work. They encourage self-reliance. They talk about the pioneering spirit of Americans. They talk about, um, yeah, settling the frontier. But most of all, hard work, self-reliance don't depend on the government. And these are virtues that are there um, probably in part because Laura Ingalls Wilder's daughter, Rose Wilder Lane, was a big libertarian. But these were also things that obviously Laura Ingalls Wilder thought were true to her family's story. So I'm not surprised to see the left trying to take down these books.
0: Something interesting I found in your USA Today piece about this story was your, you argued that this instance will have implications for even more recent bodies of art and bodies of work. Can you explain your thinking there?
3: Yeah, well I noted, and this has been kind of amusing to me as someone who wasn't allowed to see Friends growing up,
0: <laughs> that uh, Friends, which you know
3: my parents saw as essentially the spawn of Satan and encouraging all sorts of bad behavior, is now seen as not woke enough. It's not respectful enough of LGBT rights. We're seeing the same thing happen. I guess Sex in the City just had the 20th anniversary of the first episode. And people wrote think pieces saying that Sex in the City is problematic, which I would actually agree that both these shows are problematic, but I think for very for different, different reasons. reasons. <laughs> but I think that what we're seeing on the left, and um I should note that the librarians were very careful to say they do still um they are okay with people reading Laura Ingalls Wilder. They're not trying to say you shouldn't read her.
0: Just that um, like she doesn't deserve to have a war an award right, after her.
3: Right. Um but I think that the left keeps trying to like just eliminate these things that they don't like. If something is problematic, the answer is not to critically approach it or to consider the context of the times. It's just eliminate it. And that's very scary. I mean, that's really encouraging the opposite of thought independent.
0: I guess it's the same thing that we're seeing happening in regards to statues and um, civil rights monuments and, and so forth. It's the racing of history because of one problematic thing about a person um, versus looking at that person as a whole in the context of the time that they were living in.
3: Right, and I think signs of the statues, um, you know, I think you have to see. If, like, the number one thing they were known for was fighting on the Confederate side, I admit that personally I'm not always sure that they should remain up,
0: but... I think they could go to a museum, but we're probably...
3: Yeah, I think that, (laughs) but even there, I think the issue is, are you looking at the greater context? And I think what too often is happening here is people are not looking at the greater context. And I think that, you know, you see this with the founding fathers, um, some of whom had certainly problems with slavery or made other bad choices. And I think we're trying to figure out how do we say they weren't perfect, but they did good things. And unfortunately, the left seems to be saying if you weren't perfect by today's standards, you should be cast to the garbage bin of history, which strikes me as very
0: problematic. Pretty soon, it sounds like we're going to have no history at all.
3: (laughs) Right, which those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. So that'll be great.
1: (laughs) Okay, thank you. That wraps up our show this week. Thank you all for tuning in. And as always, if you know a problematic woman, please let us know. You can follow my work at The Daily Signal and on Twitter at Maltabano.
0: And you can follow my work at The Daily Signal and on Twitter at Kelsey J. Harkness. Kate, what about you? You can also follow it at The Daily Signal and at Katrina Trinko on Twitter. Thanks for having me. This podcast is a collaboration of The Daily Signal and The Federalists, and is produced by Lauren Evans of The Daily Signal. If you like it, please support us by rating and subscribing on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate you sharing problematic women with your friends and for supporting strong conservative women who are standing up for America's culture.